0: No matter where you come from in the world, it is likely you had ancestors who learned that there is no benefit to building walls or burying treasure on shifting sand. We are finding this out all over again in this century as we try to figure out where to store data, arguably the gold of this age. An interesting collection of privacy and data protection laws runs directly in the face of a global marketplace filled with storage centers and communications networks and competing priorities. And this makes data sovereignty something of a paradox. Who can you turn to? And who can you trust? This is the Security Sessions podcast brought to you by Talos and hosted by me, Steve Prentice. In episode one of this season, we discussed the sovereign cloud in the context of the challenges of transparency, the use of encryption, and the rise of AI as powerful influences on true digital sovereignty. And now, in episode three, it is my pleasure to welcome two great cloud experts. First, Sean Heidi, a research technical director at the Cloud Security Alliance. Hey, Steve. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me today. And also, welcome to Chris Holland, who is VP of Cloud Services at Talus. Hi, Steve. Hi, Sean. Nice to be here. It's so great to have you both here. And our goal today is to get down to the brass tacks of working with vendors, customers, and the laws. So to start this conversation, I would love to learn a little bit more about each of you and wondering, Sean, would you like to go first?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Again, my name is Sean Heidi. I am one of the directors at the Cloud Security Alliance. Uh, We host a multitude of research working groups in relation to cloud security, uh, some of those being the top threats to cloud security, uh, enterprise architecture, healthcare, and services. We also have one of our larger standards documentations, the cloud controls matrix, uh, which essentially takes a look at uh, multiple domains within cloud security and being able to apply security controls to them.
0: And Chris, how about yourself?
2: Yeah, sure. Hi. Uh, so we are at TALIS, been working for many years on providing encryption solutions, uh, key management solutions and tools for organizations to manage their data. And increasingly in the world of sovereign controls and the need for managing different legislations around the world, we've been helping cloud providers and enterprises try and solve these problems through uh, different solutions that we offer. So.
0: We're very close to this issue in this uh, space. So one of the chief concerns about sovereignty comes down to simple geography. What has changed or what should change or what has not changed about how this plays a role in an organization's thinking in terms of where their data actually is?
2: It's a great question, Steve. Um, From my perspective, if you look at the last few years, um, the various laws around the world have talked about who has the data uh, who processes the data and what rights users have for that data and now we're seeing in addition to that complexity that's already in place concerns about which country uh, that data actually exists in because different countries have different laws and different jurisdictions and so it's it's yet another layer of complexity if you will for organizations to have to manage it can be particularly challenging for large organizations who have you know, customers around the world as well as employees around the world.
1: Yeah, and you know, to double down on that thought, Chris, it's really having the expertise internally within your company to understand when you're going into cloud. You know, you may think at first that it's being hosted locally or within a, a certain geographical location, but it's another to actually ask the question and pose the questions to the vendors on the reality of where a lot of Uh, the additional cloud infrastructure is living and understanding if data is transferring over borders and, you know, how will that impact our use case? Or do we have customers that are feeding in this data? Is it internal company data that's crossing into these certain cloud buckets? And so it's, it's really important to kind of take a deeper dive in an approach to understand truly where a lot of that data is living and the borders that it is crossing.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think you said something that triggered a thought for me, which is that often when I'm talking to folks, they're thinking about their own software applications, their own databases, perhaps some of their lift and shift work that they might be moving into a cloud service provider. But there's another dimension there, which you hinted at, of course, which is that organizations also use third-party SaaS applications, perhaps for HR data or, you know, for other kinds of maybe payroll type applications. And we need to be aware of, organizations need to be aware of where those organizations, their vendors, are are storing their data as well. So it's not just about, you know, where my data in Amazon or Google is. It's also about, you know, who my service providers are and where they're storing, backing up data, where where their employees are and so on. It is a complicated uh, mix. It is. And,
1: you know, this is, we've spoke about this prior, but, you know, the whole idea of The vendor of my vendor and and this is a concept and you know i'm not sure if it's it's been slated as such like that but it's critical to know you know you're going with a vendor but you have to understand they also have additional cloud infrastructure like you said chris and really not being afraid to ask those questions of them on how they are using it how it's being supported and you know, you, you get a confidence boost when they are able to approach you and provide a lot of those details to you You can actually, you know, be like, all right, this, this vendor has a clear understanding. They're very willing to open up about how they are using cloud and, and it provides a lot more confidence, which I think in security and, you know, in relation to data, we're all really looking for is just a
0: confidence boost. What's the best way to make that confidence boost happen? I mean, is this something that you can explain visually in terms of having some sort of visual map of where data actually does reside? Is that used or is it simply just an education process of talking about servers and locations and countries? In other words, what are the tools that you can use to help people of different levels in an organization truly comprehend the nature of borders and storage and movement of data? I think this is something,
1: it's it's both knowledge-based and visual-based and for something like the cloud security alliance how we really have approached this over time is with our cloud controls matrix mappings as well as our cake security consensus questionnaire which is essentially a list of questions that you can provide to your vendor and if they are willing to fill it out they can and you know there's a shortened version cuz you you know vendors when you approach them with 150 questions. Oftentimes it, it gets quite overwhelming for them. They don't want to fill it out. It, it takes procurement times a lot longer to complete. And so it is having the ability to approach them with a set of standard questions, which we have tried to address over time. And it's worked very well. Um, and it essentially will create, you know, this database of anyone that can use it. It's a very vendor neutral. If you are a customer looking for that, you can reach out to them and or reach out to the CSA, take a look at this database. But, you know, coming back to that, it's having the ability to know what questions to ask and having that guidance and trust in the vendor that they will respond accordingly. And essentially you're just trusting that they are going to respond. And this, this goes on top of what else you would really ask from a vendor on, Hey, can you provide us any, uh, architecture usage for these specific components within your company? Um, you know, This is aside from things like SOC reports, but it's really digging deeper on, hey, let's take a look at your architecture. If you're able to provide it, you know, by NDA and let's have a look at how uh, data is crossing borders. Let's see how uh, Internet connections are talking to one another and kind of building that bigger picture. And so I I think one hand it's technical on the other it's compiling all of this knowledge and putting it all together to draw a, a more granular conclusion.
2: I think it's a great point uh, Sean's making. And I think if hopefully all of the people listening to this have engaged with the CSA at some point or at some level. But if they haven't, I really do applaud what the CSA has done in terms of helping folks understand the different layouts of clouds and, and the particularly the shared responsibility matrix, which has been used for a long time now to help folks understand the difference between what the cloud provider's responsibility is for security and what the Uh, customers' responsibility is. And then, you know, I know recently they've updated some of that to include these ideas of sovereignty and jurisdiction. And I think it's incredibly helpful because, you know, without that guide, those set of guideposts and rules for organizations, you know, they can get pretty lost. And by providing that framework, it helps. I mean, not only does it help customers, but it helps us as a vendor as well, uh, all get on the same page in terms of the language that we use and the way we approach solving those problems.
0: But do you find that there are particular questions that do get overlooked or forgotten? Uh, Perhaps areas like backup or failover, uh, particular segments that continue to be kinds of holes in people's comprehension? Honestly, some
1: of those questions naturally by vendors, because they're using AWS or they're using Microsoft or they're using Google, there's the idea that they are covered as far as backups and critical infrastructure being able to be spun up again on, on the spot. And if we spin this back to data, you know, that that is a correct idea somewhat. But on the other end of it, it's truly knowing what you are building out in your cloud infrastructure if you're a vendor. And often we have found that they say they're potentially doing one thing, but they actually don't understand the architecture behind the cloud, If where a lot of these other geographic failover locations are at and it's really you know being able to take that and asking them the questions on top of those that's often what i have seen is not a true understanding of where a lot of this is living and a lot of where the failovers are actually living at and being spun up at
2: i think i think that's right but i think it's even more complicated than that because while you might be able to sit down on one day and, and map it all out the fact of the matter is it's going to change over time so the vendors that you work with are going to expand their services they're going to change their services so unless you're keeping an eye on that and modifying what you're doing then then that's something to be concerned about. Organizations themselves right they create contracts to do these things and then over time people move on people change these contracts come up for renewal nobody knows why it was this reason it gets renewed and maybe it shouldn't be renewed or somebody does a cost saving and goes somewhere else or, um, you know, all companies acquire and divest and, and the rules that they have to deal with change. So, you know, it's all very well sitting down and, and planning it out one day. But the idea that it's static is, um, you know, it's not necessarily the, the right uh, thinking. But from our perspective, you know, one of the things I'm tooting our own horn a little bit here, but our perspective is that encryption helps solve that problem quite effectively. Um, and particularly independently managed uh, encryption solutions because if I am holding on to the keys and then encrypting the data whether it's being used at that time or being backed up later it doesn't matter necessarily where that data ends up because if you're controlling the keys and then access to the keys so that when that data can actually be used you then have the ability to, to more easily and effectively control uh, where that data is living and how it's being used, and you don't have to worry so much about you know a backup accidentally getting shipped off to a different region for you know for whatever reason because you know that it's that it's encrypted and only you guys you know only you have the uh the means to control access to it
1: yeah and chris, you know that's a that's a great point actually to raise because we come back to these traditional security controls and encryption is one of those, and when we take a look at, you know, maybe an old school approach, but it's, it's still gaining popularity with new trends and new ways to actually implement it are things like identity and understanding who has access to what, how are those thing, how is that data being accessed by those individuals? And so it's funny in security that these always come full circle again. And so in response to data, it's, are we doing these other things first to help, uh, alleviate a lot of the pain that you'll face later on when the subject and topic of data comes up. And so that, that was a very good point, Chris.
2: Yeah, we and for some time now, identity solutions and our identity solutions have had the ability to continuously report on parameters around what is accessing. And that's, you know, the location has been, has been part of that. The ability to uh, use that location information has definitely become more and more important for these, these reasons of jurisdiction and sovereignty. Um, I think there's another dimension as well to helping organizations manage the sovereignty. And, and it's this is now back to you know, a company's own workloads and where they're running, as opposed to necessarily you know, where their SaaS application vendors are running their clouds, which is this emergence of um, domestically run cloud services that are done in partnership uh, with a global cloud service provider and we've seen quite a lot of that happening in Europe um, particularly in you know the main economies in France and Italy and and Germany and so on where uh, both you know Google and Microsoft are partnering with service providers in those countries to operate you know what looks like and behaves like a Google Cloud but has the assurance of being operated by a domestic provider in that country on infrastructure and in data centers that are controlled uh, in that country. So the service providers themselves are starting to uh, address some of these problems as well with with providing localized, locally managed services, but with the benefits of all of the scalability and ease of use that these um, cloud services offer.
0: We're talking about all these challenges about where the data is going and where it needs to be and what organizations need to visualize in terms of working with cloud companies to set up situations where data can be appropriately stored. But is the location going to be in some regard a moot point in the future? If if data can be encrypted, for example, as you were saying before, do we really need to worry about location in the future? This seems to be a parallel argument as with passwords. Many experts see the days of passwords being numbered as pass keys and biometrics come in to replace them. So do you see that down the line, this kind of territorial division or territorial placement of data will no longer be as important as it seems to be right now? I would hope that's the case. I think
2: a number of use cases certainly are are solved with encryption. Um, It doesn't solve every use case, and I wish... You know, I wish it did, but it doesn't solve every use case. Um, we still have to operate on data, and we still have to worry about where those operations are and where people are uh, when they're doing those operations. I mean, certainly with uh, you know, in our post-pandemic world, there's so many more remote workers, um, and and you know, knowing where they all are is potentially something that that has to be uh, has to be addressed. So. I think for the main stores of data, for the large repositories, for backups and stuff like that, um, encryption definitely eases that. Um, But for data in use and data being moved around and operated on, um, encryption can solve a lot of things, but uh, there's still a lot of planning and thought that has to go into making that uh, effective.
0: We also have the idea of third-party vendors. And you had mentioned a little bit earlier on in this episode, uh, in terms of the vendor of my vendor, so how comfortable can people be that the third-party vendor that you hook up with is actually the third party, even though perhaps they may be using 20 other cloud systems that are hosting data somewhere else? What should organizations be concerned about when it comes to doing due diligence on who these vendors of vendors are and how they would impact the overall security concept? I guess we can come back to
1: the part where you know they're doing These questionnaires they're filling it out and it really does take a lot of due diligence to take a look at these questionnaires on the responses from the vendors and understanding what they're providing you and you know what we have found and what I have found through our research at CSA is often when there is a vendor, a cloud vendor, we'll say, a SaaS application, that when you really start to dig into the questions about, all right, where is location, co-location? Uh, where does data live? Is there any protections against the data? Then they will start responding with, well, we actually have another cloud service provider who hosts this data for us, and they are actually in AWS. And so that is the breaking part on, well, okay, can we, are we able to get any sort of information from your provider now who is providing that service on how they are doing, uh, data movements, how they are doing identity and access management. Do they have any uh, local or regulatory laws that they have to match up with? And so it, it inherently just happens naturally through the process. And that's why I think it's so important to do these application security reviews um, during a procurement phase. And, you know, being at CSA, it, it's it's kind of ringing our own bell, but it's one of those things that everyone in the industry is seen as very critical to onboarding, because once you identify these applications, you can start start to really build a bigger picture on. Okay, well, they're actually reliant on two or three other cloud resources in the back end. So now, let's just see if we are able to have them respond. And oftentimes, the beauty of all of this is you're actually assisting that vendor in understanding their vendors more, um, and it, it really all ties it together. And it's and it's not only helping the customer. But these vendors start to understand and build relationships with one another on, hey, it's all of our jobs to keep things secure. We can do this together. And these are the steps being brought forth that we can actually use to accomplish it.
2: It's interesting. A couple of years ago, we started to see those uh, SaaS vendors come to us and say, our customers are demanding that you know, the employee information or whatever it is that we hold on their behalf. Complies with their policies. Hey, hey Talis, can you help us figure that out? And we've also seen, you know, some of our direct customers come and, and say, you know, we need this SaaS vendor to to follow the same security policies you're helping us implement. How can we do that? So, um, so those so the vendor of my vendor is starting to starting to get involved and in recognizing that they have to do things because. It's not just about onboarding new new vendors, right? Large companies have got established relationships with existing SaaS companies that those companies, you know, they can't afford to break them just because they're not compliant. They need to find a way to make them compliant. And so there's uh, there's definitely the onboarding question, but there's also the all of my existing vendors question and how do I get them over the line? Yeah,
1: and interestingly enough, Chris, I've also found over time that you know, like you said, and it's a great point, they may not be compliant, but there may not also be anyone else you can really go to. I mean, if you have a specific business or enterprise you're in, and there's not many applications that can facilitate the job that needs to get done, you can't just say, hey, we we can't go with you anymore and cut ties with them. Oftentimes, you aren't stuck, but it is the best option at that point in time. And it's really a critical key point where vendor and customer create this relationship because the the vendors are willing to listen. And I found more often than not that there is a willingness to help facilitate a change in the app itself to ensure that the customers stay happy and that they're actually being secure. And it's really opening up that line of communication. And I think a lot of businesses right now, customers aren't aware of that. And I think, you know, for anyone listening, there is the uh open-ended discussions that are always wanted by vendors where hey we want to hear what you have to say we just need to know and understand what you need done and we can kind of help facilitate it and you know i won't speak on behalf of vendors but more often than not the customer success teams really help drive a lot of that they want to see that engagement and i i think for customers listening it, it is a critical key point that you can approach them and you know they They will be listening, maybe not always, but they will always have an open ear uh, to the ground to be able to take some of these uh, items you may have or concerns and
0: really try to address them. It's interesting how this comes back around to being a human thing. It comes back around to the importance of having a trusted advisor on your side. I mean, somebody can give you that guidance in regards to the mechanical components, the understanding of the physical nature of cloud technology. That all has to be there, of course, but... Ultimately, it comes down to choosing to work with someone that you can trust and guide you not only through the immediate concerns of data and cloud, but as you've said a couple of times already, it's more of a multidimensional environment because you've got time as well as the physical locations of the moment. Not only does this data move, but companies move as well. They, They acquire each other or they split up or divest. And there are so many other internal changes that happen with themselves, as well as relationships with the vendors they currently have. And these may change. So guiding people through that additional dimension of this existence, I think this is a crucial component or value statement, if you like, of having a good relationship to make data safe and make it future proof. Do you have any particular other thoughts about that concept of looking through the future of a business life and preparing your customers for that particular additional dimension of their data's existence?
1: Yeah, and and this is a good point, and I think Chris can probably really relate to this as well. And I, I say this a lot, and I I think I probably overuse it, but the the human portion of what we do, and you know, we can circle back to data on this because it's a key component of how enterprises run. Everyone uses data. There is a human portion that always needs to be addressed, and oftentimes I think we look for the new shiny, the new controls, the new. Technology, but it always will come back to the ability to properly manage these things, understand the key standards or frameworks. If you don't understand how to fix it, where to look. And there's always going to be that component of human nature where you actually need that to drive and facilitate a lot of this. So if we understand, if we don't understand where our data is at, or we don't understand the legality forces of it, we need to find someone or someone needs to be able to help facilitate those changes and really drive home what is actually needed. Um, I'm I'm curious, Chris, have, have you felt the same way?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it is, it is ultimately about humans and, and their control. You know, we can provide lots of tools, but you know, we do need adults in charge to, To keep an eye on things and make sure that they're doing it correctly. Partly I think that's why I think the CSA's models there are particularly helpful because it gives folks the kind of guardrails on how to do that. Um, We have some additional sorts of thoughts and views on how sovereignty is broken down to help our customers manage those things as well. We we look at things like the sovereignty of data, uh, technical sovereignty, and then operational sovereignty. And it's just another way to help folks break down uh, where the workloads are, where the data is, who the vendors of the vendors are, and and look at all of those things uh, holistically to try and map out what's happening. But um, there's no doubt it's it's a very complicated thing. It's not a single point in time. It's, it has to be a continuous effort, you know, to do an assessment and a, an assessment of you know where everything is and and keep an eye on it and just keep working on on
0: making sure everything's compliant. So last question I have for you would be around this notion of the complexity. And of course, we can't really have any discussions about technology this year, at least without bringing in AI and especially things like ChatGPT, which in certain circumstances are already showing promise in managing questionnaires as just one simple example. So what are your thoughts about the impact of new AI-based technologies like ChatGPT on the overall process here? Well,
2: yeah. So AI and ChatGPT uh, has enormous implications, I think, for all kinds of things. Um, I'm particularly concerned with the ability for AI to more effectively uh, fish users for you know social engineering type attacks to get access to systems. I think that's the that's the area that I'm particularly concerned about right now um, because. You know tricking people into clicking links has has gotten better and better and better over the last few years and now you know machines that are you know con- convincingly human um, are going to make it even harder for, for folks to distinguish uh, genuine from malicious activity. That's one side of it I think the other side of it that's potentially dangerous here is that I think more and more people are going to rely on, you know, what the AI tells them the answer is. We've all, you know, schools today try really hard to stop children from using Wikipedia to get answers. Um, But, you know, they do it. And one day, you know, I think folks in IT are going to, you know, just, hey, ask ChatGPT, how do I solve my sovereignty problem? And it's going to spit something out that may or may not be accurate. And uh, we're going to lose some creativity and, and some smart, thinking as a result. So that's what that's what worries me a little bit about um, what these technologies might be bringing. But also on the positive side, that ML technology, that AI technology is helping companies understand how their data is being used and that helps them drive future decisions, including uh, how they can best manage sovereignty.
1: Yeah, and you know, we recently published a research paper on security implications of ChatGPT, and of those were some of the things chris that you identified i mean it's the speed at which you can now have answers provided to you on the flip side of that it's how do we verify that these answers are accurate um, because there's very limited uh, ideology right now around where these answers are coming from it's just a a language model that's kind of compiling everything and, and pushing it out to you, right? And so it's how do we verify that this is correct? And, you know, we've not- also noticed really that, you know, the, uh, at the speed at which polymorphic code can be written for things like malware, uh, making changes in a system, taking a piece of uh, code and being able to get the same end state out of it but change it in a completely new way within seconds is something that I think is is quite scary. But when we talk about things like data sovereignty, um, you know, it would take your typical analyst in a role, in a company, at a security desk, you know, maybe a few hours, a few weeks to really map it together. And if ChatGPT or these language models can help facilitate a lot of that information somewhat accurately in a matter of, you know, 10 minutes, let's say, once you give it these prompt injections that are kind of leading in the direction that you need it to respond to, we're talking about cutting down the time in, you know, fourth of the time that it would take a typical worker. And it's not to say that it's going to replace anybody, uh, but it is going to help facilitate the thought process and mind mapping that it typically would take your your casual security employee to do. And for data sovereignty, that might be as easy as, hey, can we write a script to you know in Azure to help pull where this specific data set is sitting and then it it spits out a PowerShell script in a matter of seconds Um, and this can be used for other use cases i've seen like identity and access management hey can we can we add these 70 users to this specific security group in Azure Active Directory who and can you also tell me what roles or what permissions they have And I think these are going to be the main use cases we see short-term on the ability to really help facilitate, you know, someone who's not as expert in an area as another. But now with the help and the idea of what to provide for a prompt in chat GPT, now these individuals are going to be at that same level. Um, PowerShell scripting and learning is very difficult. It's very time-consuming. And now you have a system that, you know, as long as you understand the key concepts, it can actually provide you the right answers. And um, you just then input your own business information after the fact. And uh, as a disclaimer, I do not condone anyone putting business information, uh, sensitive business information into GPT, but rather use it as a learning point. And I, I think there's both good and bad. Um, you know, more recently, we've addressed the implications. But, you know, for things like data sovereignty, understanding, you know, data encryption, how do I... How do I even begin to
0: encrypt? I think these are areas where ChatGPT actually really helps facilitate that. Well, we've covered a great deal of ground here about the current status of data sovereignty and its future, both for individuals and for organizations and for countries and their borders. So, what are your closing thoughts or observations before we close off this conversation?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I think the important part here is to understand and you know we'll come back to this idea of the vendor and my vendor i say it a lot but it truly is something that when you think about that term it kind of helps you move along the point like there's more that i need to worry about i think with all of the technology that's growing i think with things like chat gpt it's only going to start enhancing the speed at which cloud is being really pushed out into enterprises i think it's going to help facilitate people to understand things quicker. But with that, I think enterprises are also going to want to move a lot faster. And I think with that concept of what we've discussed about understanding what your vendor's doing, ask them the right questions, make sure you have appropriate personnel who are doing these reviews and they have an understanding of how data is moving through cloud. I think you can then start to move in a positive direction that my data will be secured and that the technology... That is growing behind it is also help pushing us towards the end goal along with it, and so I, I really just want to you know leave with there's there's positives of all of this, and it's really do the small things now so you're prepared for the larger things at a later time.
2: I would add that you know I think it might be cliche to say, but you know addressing this it's not a it's a journey right it's not a, a one step process it's a journey that. You have to get on and, um, you know, use the frameworks that are out there. Uh, Use the tools that are out there. You know, encryption and and security products are a great way to solve a number of those problems. Um, And so just keep on it. And, you know, adding that layer of sovereignty control is achievable for
0: folks. Great wisdom. Wise words from both of you. Thank you. I think that, you know, connecting with trusted advisors to help organizations work through these challenges is, of course, the first prudent step that anybody could take. So, Sean Heidi, Research Technical Director at the Cloud Security Alliance, I want to thank you so much for being here today. As well, Chris Holland, VP of Cloud Services at Talus. Thank you both for joining me here today on the Talus Security Sessions podcast. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, a pleasure. Steve. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and tell a friend or a colleague or a client or all of them about the Talus Security Sessions podcast. We will be back again soon with another episode and another discussion on the topics that you need to know about to successfully carry on in the business of information security. Until then, I'm Steve Prentice. Thanks for listening.